Hello, everyone. Alex here. Today, I'm talking to Hilary Leichter about her 2020 novel, Temporary. Hilary's writing has appeared in N Plus One, The New Yorker, Harper's, The New York Times, and New York Magazine's The Cut. She teaches fiction at Columbia University has been, and has been awarded fellowships from the Folger Shakespeare Library and the New York Foundation for the Arts. Published in March 2020, Temporary was shortlisted for the Center of Fiction First Novel Prize and longlisted for the Penn slash Hemingway Award. In Temporary, a young woman fills increasingly bizarre job placements in the search for steadiness and something at last to call her own. Whether it's shining an endless closet of shoes, swabbing the deck of a pirate ship, assisting an assassin, or filling in for the chairman of the board, for the mythical Temporary, there is nothing more personal than doing your job. Hi, Hillary. Thank you for talking to me today. Hi, Alex. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start, I just kind of want to take a side note and just say how much I absolutely loved reading Temporary. Um, I got an advanced reader's copy a few months before publication, and immediately I think I devoured it in one sitting and just fell in love. Oh, thank you so much for saying that. That's so sweet. Um, I'm glad that it kept you company this year. <laughs> Yeah, definitely, definitely did. Uh, but I'm curious to know, did you write this with a kind of a specific audience in mind? Who is your ideal reader? And then I have a, a, an immediate follow up for that. Oh, good. Um, yes, I was picturing a kind of depressive woman alone in an office. <laughs> and her name is probably like Margaret, but everyone calls her Margie. <laughs> And that is my ideal reader. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> it's such an interesting question because I think maybe this is selfish or maybe this is ideal, but when I'm writing, my ideal reader is me, you know, just writing toward the thing that I'm curious about or the thing that I don't understand, the thing that I'm trying to understand through writing. And so that that is what I'm what's on my mind but I'm so pleased that my strange little book seems to have resonated with millennials and overworked young people <laughs> in, in these in these trying times <laughs> yeah and I mean it's, it's funny and like very understandable that you say that the person that you're writing for is you because isn't that such an old kind of cliche in in authordom is very write the stories that you want to hear yeah. Yeah. I, I, I really think that if you're writing for someone else that you're going to feel that on the page, it's going to feel um, like fiction meant to please or fiction meant to satisfy. I actually think we see that a lot with all of the, the television and film reboots happening that are like sort of quote unquote <laughs> fan service, you know, and art can't be fan service. It has to be, servicing something more profound than that. So, so I wrote it thinking that no one would read it except for my mother <laughs> and then <laughs> was pleased that other people did. And, and that's great. That's just like an added bonus. That's the cherry on top for me. <laughs> so, I, and then I guess the follow-up to this would be that I love hand selling this book. I love selling this book at the bookshop. Um, but sometimes I have kind of a difficult time describing exactly what people are about to get into. Um, 
is this story one big metaphor? Am I reading all of this literally? So kind of following up on who your ideal reader is, being you and being the kind of people that, like you said, <laughs> not Margie, not Margie in the office. Um, but how is your ideal reader reading this book? Yeah. Um, I, God, I'm just gonna like non-answer all of your questions today, I think. <laughs> please, please. For me, the, the ideal person who who purchases this book or takes it out from the library is someone who has a reaction to it that I never anticipated. And I think that's what's so much fun and so unexpected to me about being a writer, the the fact that readers are your co-authors. And I, I didn't anticipate that. Um, this is my first book, so it's a new experience for me hearing about the things that people find in the book that I did not intentionally put there or the way that it the way that it rings off of their own experiences that you know I did not know about and it, you know the way it rings off of the pandemic and obviously I didn't know that that was going to happen um so the ideal reader for me is someone who I it just surprises me with their understanding of what I was or their kind of knowledge of what I was trying to say without me even knowing what I was trying to say. Um, and I really should include a starter pack with like how to hand sell this book. <laughs> like, like you have to put on a pirate eye patch first. Yeah. You have to sit yeah. the person down, like, like, you know, and talk to them very quietly. Like, are you comfortable with surrealism? Are you, <laughs> are you okay with a non-traditional structure? That this is the book for you. <laughs> Luckily, I think people really resonate with all of those things, especially right now. So it's kind of an easy sell at the end of the day. That's good. That's good to hear. And I mean, I guess just as a side note and as, or from rather my own book selling experience, I do think the most fun way to sell this book and to read this book is literally, which is how I tried to do it, how I read it. I think uh, there's clearly so much more deeper meaning to everything uh, and to glean from it. But at the surface level, it just really reads as this objectively fun adventure story. What kind of stories are you generally attracted to? Well, that's, a, that's so smart, Alex. And like, that makes so much sense to me because it's how I wrote it. I wrote it from this place of strict literalism where taking, you know, sitting there and taking this kind of corporate dialect that we've all acclimated ourselves to and working backward and making it literal, you know, so a phrase like parent company, well, that's a metaphoric phrase, you know, but what, what happens if you take that and you backtrack and make it something that's literal? So it makes sense to read it literally to me because that's absolutely how I wrote it. Um, I love that you think of it as an adventure story. I I do too. And I, that was the type of thing I liked to read when I was a kid. Um, and it's still so appealing to me, just this, this feeling of the character going off into the world in search of something, because I think that is what it feels like to start writing a book. Um, and I wanted to capture that exuberance and that joy, but also the confusion and isolation that can come from that. Um, I remember I loved this book when I was a kid. I think it was called I Houdini. 
don't know if you know that one. It's a it's about a hamster named Houdini who just oh my gosh. escaping. I think it's Lynn Reed Banks, I think is the author. And I loved, I loved her books when I was a kid. But yeah, I think there's something about the adventure story when you're a young reader that is a preview of life. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting to me to take that and lay it over an adult experience, but still make it about a preview to life because I feel that so many of us feel like our lives haven't started yet. And so the idea of being swept off on a pirate ship or hired to work for an assassin, it still feels like that could happen any minute. We're all just kind of waiting for our lives to begin. So (laughs) that was exciting to me. Um, And I love, you know, Gulliver's travels. I was thinking a lot about Pinocchio when I wrote this. And, you know, that the temp in the book wants to become permanent or sort of a real, a real girl. And um, so that was in the back of my mind for sure. And do you think that's translated to uh, Hillary the adult? Are you still kind of attracted to those adventure stories at your core? I am. But to be honest, I don't, maybe you can recommend a book to me. I, I don't see them as frequently in adult contemporary fiction. You know, I feel like you have to go to sci-fi or you have to go to fantasy, which I love as well, to find that kind of narrative. Um, um, Another one that I just read, I just remembered this. um, I read it in 2020. I think it came out in like, I don't I want to say a few years ago, um, Treasure Island, exclamation point, exclamation point. I think there are three exclamation points by Sarah Lane. And that, that felt to me, I mean, obviously Treasure Island, the original is an adventure story, but this this felt to me like what I was craving. Also, it's so funny. It's the funniest book ever. But it's um this woman who kind of starts to shape her life around the book Treasure Island and follow the <laughs> principles of that book as a way of living her life. And it's just so bizarre. And um, yeah, but we don't, our lives are not shaped that way, right? By these quests. Yeah. It's like the the only quests I go on are to the refrigerator <laughs> right now. <laughs> so, but it's like you said, it's kind of just, we're always waiting for our lives to start, right? Like I'm waiting for that pirate to burst it through the door and just say like, you're coming with me. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, I think um, people forget that adults have that desire too, to for something magical to occur for something unpredictable to happen. It's not just something ascribed to children. I think Um, we want to find a door in the back of the wardrobe too. So badly. So badly. (laughs) Why not? I'm still waiting for my Hogwarts letter forever. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I couldn't help but wonder what a boomer audience would think of reading temporary Uh, a lot of the attitudes around work and work ethic are so so different for our parents generations have you heard feedback from older readers is there a noticeable difference in the reaction if you're talking to somebody in their 50s and 60s and somebody in their 20s and 30s definitely um it's mixed for sure because i actually don't think that this is a new issue. I think it's an issue we're finally ready to talk about and that is coming to a head, but I don't think that um, we're the first 
generation to have to do unpleasant things for very little pay and stability. So I get the reaction sometimes that's like, this is my, this is so true. This is my life. This is, or, or the reaction of like, oh, you'll never believe the job that I had when I was 22 and right out of school. And I had a, you know, two babies and and I was doing this strange um, position in town. And, and so there's that kind of reaction. And then uh, what I get a lot of the time is like, you helped me understand what my grandkids or my kids are talking about when they talk about work lives. And that's really fun to hear. Yeah. The fact that it like echoes something that they're hearing from their own family members. And then, and then the rest of them just hate it. No, I'm kidding. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, maybe they do, but I really don't think this is a, I think it's often framed as a young person problem. First of all, I don't feel super young anymore (laughs) and I'm still dealing with this life. So um, but I think it's been around for, for decades. This is, this is not, um, it's not news that people treat people badly and we, we trample people in order to make money. And that's like, that's America 101. I mean, this novel just like clearly, especially lends itself super well to a millennial mindset. Uh, You know, a lot of us are actively participating in gig economy and millennial burnout is forever on the rise, especially in this pandemic world where um, gig economy is a lot of people's only means of making money. But now a lot of those gigs are just totally missing from the landscape. So can you just kind of, before I go further, explain gig economy a little bit for our listeners and anybody who might not be familiar with that term before we throw it around even more. Sure. So the way that I understand it, because I am not a scholar of the gig economy, (laughs) is that it is um, a fiscal system based on usually young people, but not necessarily, who are willing to work for very low pay in freelance positions, which means that there's no benefits or there's no long-term structure to the job. Um, And so this can manifest as like a job that you would get through a temp agency, or maybe it's a gig that you get if you're an artist or a project. There's no commitment to stay longer um, from either side. And it often comes up as permalance, something as a, a permalance position where you're essentially working 40 hours a week, but without benefits or sick days or vacations. And, um, you know, you can see this everywhere from Amazon to adjunct faculty schedules. So like a work culture built on insecurity is kind of, (laughs) is kind of how I think about it. Did I do it justice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I definitely think so. And like I said, I just kind of wanted to have your, you unfortunately, I think, have thrust yourself into the gig economy scholar position. <laughs> I, You know, there is another element to it that I don't hear discussed as often, just in the name gig economy, which sounds so jaunty and fun. And there is this element to it where it's like usually pink collar jobs Um, so it's something that is supposedly giving you access or like if you, if you hang around in these positions long enough, you'll build a resume that will make you qualified for a full-time position. There's like the, 
the promise of blank and that that blank, you know, fill it in with whatever you want to fill it in with, like, you know, the job of being a writer or being a full-time tenure track professor or being, I, I don't even know what to fill it in with. And so there's something like hopeful about that language, gig economy. It's not, which is belies what it really is, which is undervalued worker economy. It's <laughs> kind of a more <laughs> accurate term for it, I think. Yeah, no, I would definitely agree. So just kind of like building off of that again, and just to kind of repeat my question earlier, which is, you know, in our pandemic world, the gig economy is something that a lot of people depend on, but it's also kind of missing from the landscape right now. Does the story of temporary change according to the current climate, or is it always at its core the same? And I guess I'm asking what temporary and what temporary's brand of temp work would look like in a post-2020 world. Hmm. I don't know if the gig economy is gone right now. I mean, I can't, I can only speak for New York, but I think a lot of work, obviously a lot of jobs were lost, but a lot of work moved seamlessly online and made the idea of a work-life separation even more impossible. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's it's kind of a paradox in that way. It's less relevant and more relevant and more insidious. What would the world of temporary look like if there was a pandemic? Well, in, in the world of the book, the temp is always asked to fill in for people, but maybe not in the way that you or I would be asked to fill in for someone, you know, at a desk job. So she might be asked to fill in for a grandmother who is, you know, a high risk person and can't see her grandchildren. So maybe she is, she goes and hugs the grandmother's grandchildren and <laughs> exposes herself to COVID. So I think it's still- Oh, I love that though. <laughs> I think it, it still translates because it's all about putting yourself, the book is all about putting yourself in harm's way for someone else's comfort or for your own financial and career advancement and survival. So I think it would still work. It would just be, you know, she might, she might die <laughs> before the end of the book. <laughs> Unfortunately, because um, it's a, we live in a much more dangerous world now than the world that I wrote the book in. Thank you for that answer, though. That was a great answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're asking me to like rewrite it on the spot. <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> I'm like, what's she doing? Is she just sitting on Zoom? <laughs> Where is she now? <laughs> I mean, she must be. She, although, you know, that's an interesting question because there really isn't any technology in the book because I don't know how to do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, there's something about the world of like fable and folklore that kind of resists cell phones so Mm -hmm. she might have a cell phone but I never mention it (laughs) (laughs) uh so temporary is officially just like a few days almost on the nose uh being one year old so congratulations you published on March 2nd 2020 right before the the three-week lockdown started Um, (laughs) so I'm interested to kind of just hear about how you celebrated publication and what the challenges were with promoting this debut about work in a virtual world where a lot of people actively were not at work can you see the common theme that I'm trying to give you here 
I celebrated alone in my apartment. <laughs> it was what a wild time, you know? It feels like it was so long ago. I was worried that there would be a blizzard and that would be the thing that would prevent my family from coming to town and us having a book launch and ha 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 ha. That's so funny. <laughs> um, yeah. So the, the book launch was scheduled for March 13th. The book was out already. And that was the day that New York officially locked down. So I went to books are magic, which was a bookstore in Brooklyn where we were going to host the launch. And I made a little video and we, None of us were wearing masks because they were telling us not to. We were all just tapping elbows jovially. Yeah. Like, this will be over in 14 days. <laughs> um, and then I came back to my apartment. I had just moved the week before to a new neighborhood. So I was just in a sea of boxes. Nothing was unpacked. And um, my husband and a couple of writer friends, they organized a Zoom launch party as a surprise. I had no idea what Zoom was at that point. You know, it had not entered my lexicon. It was not a joke yet. And so it was the most enchanting thing I'd ever seen in my life. I was like peering into it like this, really close to the screen, scrolling through the chat, trying to understand what was happening. I didn't understand that I was not muted when I was, and I wasn't, I mean, I just, it was such a novelty and it was um, so much fun. It was a great, it was a great time. So, you know, then after that, it was like, oh, I have to learn how to talk about this thing I wrote in terms of a global pandemic, which is, I just sort of feel like writers shouldn't have to talk about what they wrote at all, because who cares what I think? It's much more interesting what, the person who read it thinks, to be frank. Um, and I was like, well, I, I'm not um, equipped. For, I felt very intimidated <laughs> by suddenly having to speak to work and our culture in a way that is complex. And I didn't want to simplify anything in interviews or um, on podcasts like this. And so I really spent a lot of time thinking about what my book meant and how it was different than when I wrote it. Um, Cause when I wrote it, it was just like this surrealist autobiographical thing that, that I didn't think anyone would care about in a political or cultural sense, aside from it being like super odd. So, so yeah. So those, those few weeks after the city shut down and, you know, it was so scary and heartbreaking to see um, what was happening in the world. And it, it was also um, a lesson in the fact that you can write whatever you want, but you just don't even know what you've written until it mm -hmm. arrives um, in other people's hands. Yeah, and so you did also kind of mention in all of that that <laughs> you would consider temporary to be kind of semi-autobiographical oh, sure. would you say that like is it really based have you had a lot of experience with temping did you participate did you or are you an active participant in the gig economy um no but i'm an assassin by trade okay. <laughs> That's <enough. laughs> no i'm not an assassin don't tell anyone <laughs> um yeah so it's emotionally autobiographical i mean i I first wrote it as a short story as a part of my graduate thesis. And then I published the story and I was like, 
okay, the story is done, therefore, because it exists online now. <laughs> and I was looking at another book that I hated and I was so unhappy writing it. And then I went back to the short story and was like, I, you know, this is interesting. I wrote this several years ago and I'm still this person working 10 jobs just to stay afloat, not knowing how to say no to anything that pays. I feel like I'm drifting further and further away from my goals as an artist, but just accumulating more work. <laughs> and it doesn't feel good. And it, it never felt good, but there's a big difference between, you know, being in your 30s and feeling that way and being like 22 and feeling that way. And um, that's kind of what I meant with like the, the gig economy. It feels like bright eyed and bushy tailed. But when you're a part of the gig economy for a decade, it doesn't. And I, you know, I just felt like there was something to say there about that, that feeling. And so that's the place that I wrote it from. Um, a place of kind of exhaustion, but also just dark, dark humor at the things that I've been asked to do and that everyone is asked to do in their daily work and trying to take that to the most literal extreme and the highest heights of absurdity. And so while I've never been a pirate, I've definitely been in workspaces where I don't really know what I'm, what is expected of me and what's going on and I feel scared and it feels, um, and I feel seasick. <laughs> or, you know, workspaces where the, the enterprise as a whole feels suspect. Mm -hmm. And then how does that drift back onto you, the, the lowly temp worker. I, I did also temp for a while through an agency, but most of my jobs were just these random gigs that were kind of thrown my way through a friend of a friend or through like just being in the right place at the right time. And I think when you're in New York for long enough, that tends to happen. Um, but I did work through an agency for a while and those jobs were just the pits. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they really were. Um and then kind of just bring it back to the like the started temporary started as a short story that you had written and published um and then talking about how it's emotionally autobiographical in a lot of ways it it, it really does kind of start as this absurd romp that twists itself into this really kind of heartwarming story you know like i would say I would argue that some of the major themes are like familial love and tenderness and hard times, which you kind of bring up again. And just like, even though you're in these kind of insidious companies or you're a pirate on the ship or an assassin, there still really is this kind of tenderness at its core. So that was always present when you were writing this or did that kind of evolve when you decided to expand on this? Yeah, it wasn't, it, it's like touched on in the short story, but it's not, I mean, just by nature of it being a six page story, it's much more kind of short and deadpan and experimental and yeah, not enough space to get into those ideas. But uh, in writing about identity and how we understand identity and how we define ourselves through our work, it became clear that the opposite of that is defining ourselves through love and relationships and the people around us. Um, and so that, that was important to me to, 
yeah, I like the way you put it, that it like kind of twists itself into that. And, and I, it was important to me to get there um, in a non, in a non-trite way. You know, I, I do really think that we are kind of beholden to our identities as consumers under capitalism. And so when you strip that away, when you lose your job, when you're unemployed or when you're not making enough money to survive and no one seems to care, well then what is your identity and how do you find that sense of self? And for the the temp in the book, it's a literal quest because she literally is only the person that she is replacing. There is no identity beyond that. And so that, um, that felt existentially weird to me and fun and like sad and fun at the same time, something to explore. Um, and now kind of changing course just a little bit in a lot of ways, temporary also as a story is creation myth. Yeah. It is. Um, if the gig economy was a religion, then temporary would be testament. Uh, how does one, how does one as an author correlate temp work and this kind of mythology just kind of explain that a little bit? Oh, I love that temporary would be testament. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. That, I mean, it's, it's, I'm such a geek for folklore and for mythology in any, um, of any stripe and from all over the world. I have just like a collection of fairy tales and fables from almost every country. And it's, it's fascinating to me as a way of looking at narrative. And so what I realized in thinking about this book and in thinking about how to expand it is that there isn't really a good origin myth for capitalism, at least not one that I could put my finger on. I mean, yeah. If you know of one, send it my way. I haven't read everything ever written, but it, not one that was immediately accessible to me the way that some of the myths that I grew up reading were and were just like easily, I could grab them and understand um, something that I was feeling or something I was experiencing. And it, that that doesn't exist for work, at least not in my experience. And so I, it felt important as a way of talking about work to understand where these ideas of work came from in a fictional sense, of course. And so that's where the gods came from in these interstitial myths surrounding the first temp and why she was created and what her purpose was. And from there, it sort of turned into a religion. Yes. In the, in the book a way that, um, the temp and her mother and her grandmother identify and sort of their culture. Um, it, it felt important for this to be something that was passed down because capitalism is not genetic. You know, it's something that you're taught, <laughs> you know, maybe by your family, maybe by the television, maybe by school, but it's something that we inherit from the people who came before us. Um, it's not something like innate to being a person. And so adapting it to be this kind of culture that has rules and scripture and Talmud and the practices that they they follow, that felt exciting to me. And, um, and the fact that it's matrilineal sort of in the book yeah. is, is super Jewish, which <laughs> I'm like into like, 
I mean, I wanted, I wanted the book to feel that way because that's the way my family feels and, um, or is, that's the way my family is. <laughs> but it felt like the, the idea of this being passed down from generation to generation through a line of women felt beautiful and also similar to the way that our experiences and traumas and um, the tragedies we've suffered and the things we've endured are passed from generation to generation, specifically in, in Judaism. So as a follow-up, if temp work is religion, who is God? And does he hate us? <laughs> well, in the book, there's a, there are the gods, you know, it's like a, um, I picture like a boardroom of like a full board, board of directors. Of, <laughs> board of directors. Yeah. Um, and I, I guess for those characters, I was thinking about the gods in Greek mythology specifically and how they're just such mm. baby tyrants. And, <laughs> and I think that's how, even the best employers feel sometimes just baby tyrants who have given us a paycheck for a time. And so we feel loyal to that, but there's no loyalty from the tyrant, you know, and that's, I don't know if I believe in God, but I definitely believe in some sort of, um, in board power. of directors. <laughs> I believe in the board of <laughs> I believe in pattern making. Like I believe in the, if, if this is your experience of the world working for people who don't really care about you or who care about you to a point, then it makes sense to me that that pattern appears elsewhere, you know? And so it felt like a natural, um, you know, that the idea of whether or not God hates us feels like, arbitrary because God doesn't know, care doesn't he doesn't care enough to hate us you know does your employer hate you no they don't know you exist <laughs> they don't know your name they don't know your name yeah. yeah yeah so it's um it's complex I don't know what I feel or think about a lot of these things which is why if, if I knew I don't think I would have written the book <laughs> <laughs> again that's another great answer oh, I love that I love that <laughs> okay, uh, now I am going to ask you to indulge me as a reader once again, um, because it is just this really brief chapter, but it just sticks out in my head so much for some reason, and I think it's resonated with a lot of other people that I've shared the book with. Um, why barnacles? <laughs> oh, this is a good, I actually have an answer for this. Like I, there, oh, I'm so happy. <laughs> always an answer. And it's, I hope it doesn't disappoint you. I think it's actually a really hopeful answer. So in the short story version of this novel, the temp goes from working on a pirate ship to floating ashore and working with an assassin. And in the book version, there's a lot of other stuff that happens in between. And I kind of needed a way to get her to shore. And so she <laughs> lands on a rock. It was necessitated <laughs> by my need to, for the tide to pull her in. And what's yeah. on a rock? A barnacle. It just, it really just sprung from like me following the direction of where she was going next. Um, 
And it was not in the short story. It was one of the first new sections that I wrote for the novel. And it became, it was like a joke with myself. I thought it would be cut. I thought an editor would kind of say, nope. <laughs> but I had so much fun writing it. And it it actually became a template for the, the entire project of the book in the sense that it starts as a joke. It's really dumb. It's really silly. And then it becomes kind of this fierce loyalty to the environment that these people have filling in for the coral reef that's dying and this idea that there won't be anyone left to fill in for us when we ruin everything as we're bound to do and when when I arrived there that wasn't planned and I kind of thought oh this is what I'm writing about you know this is what temporary means temporary is the the beautiful thing that we are just like smashing against the wall um so to answer your question, too long, didn't read. <laughs> to answer your question, it, it started as uh, just a something necessitated by plot and it became something necessitated by emotion. And I think that for me was such a valuable lesson as a writer that following the character can lead you somewhere emotionally unexpected instead of letting the character follow you all the time. Well, and also, I mean, it kind of lends itself so well to what you were saying about how you wrote the book literally and the literal progression would be she's on a pirate ship and then how does she get to shore? Where does she go from here? So I love that, that that was your mentality and that was your middle step. It's perfect. And like I said, for some reason, it it stands out so much. And I think maybe it's probably because it is kind of that turning point where you realize you're like, okay, this is funny. This is silly. And then you're like, wait, I'm reading this literally now. Like, what, what's happening? There's, there's much more at play here. And, and, you know, I love that you read that part literally because if you do, it's terrifying. You know, she started yeah, 100%. physically becoming a barnacle. And that was interesting to me too. Like, what is the process like of becoming another species? And what does that feel like? It must be painful. Um, but she does it anyway. Listen, who amongst us? okay so just like a fun one-off question for you now uh if a temporary was filling in for you what's that job description oh that's a good one i don't know um right now what a bore it would be i mean it, it would i'm teaching a lot right now so it would involve a lot of teaching over zoom <laughs> um i think god this is so depressing because it's such a different no but that but this is the thing about this answer is there's no wrong answer and i almost want you to give me like the most mundane parts of this temp job like <laughs> it's so sad because it's a different job than it was in 2019 you know Fair. In 2019, it would be like, okay, your job, you have to go visit, you know, my mom in Florida, my in-laws in Texas, you travel to see friends, you go to readings and like, you know, you know, one person there and, uh, <laughs> you know, you stroll around the city aimlessly and drink iced coffee and oh, what a life, what just the simple <laughs> joys of, and now it's like you wake up and stay in bed for as long as humanly possible by working, like working in bed. 
Um, Coffee is the highlight of your day. Like it brings a sparkle of joy to your eyes. (laughs) Um, Your source of main source of vitamin D is the window near your desk. (laughs) I love this though. I love this answer. (laughs) When When the grocery delivery comes, you feel like needed in the world and (laughs) um, I I think um, there's like two parts to this question which is I think your point kind of maybe that there's the personal and then there's the professional and the professional aspects of this year have been so much fun and unexpected and the idea that it's all just kind of happened from my chair here is just Mm -hmm. kind of it's terrifying but also delightful And then there's the personal stuff, which is like, we're all stuck inside. We're all waiting. We're all desperate to, for this tragedy nightmare to move forward. And blah, (laughs) (laughs) that's the, that's the official end to the job description on Craigslist. Blah. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. The temple know exactly what to do with this. She knows everything. Okay, so I mean, I think this is pretty much it. I have a little bit just kind of fun one off and I'm going to be the really cliche interviewer and say, you know, um, you clearly have a signature writing style. This being your only book out right now, that's my my source, (laughs) my source material. So um, what is, what's in the future for Hilary Leichter? And do you kind of plan on moving away from this style? Are you going to lean into it a little bit more? I want more. I want more from you. I'm asking more of you. I love this. I love the pressure you're putting on me. It's fantastic. (laughs) Um, What's next? So I'm working on uh, a new book, which I cannot say much about because it's very new, but it's a novel and it's similarly kind of experimental. Um, I love that you think I have a style when I only have one book. That's so (laughs) It's really important to me. And I think this comes from starting off kind of in the performing arts and in theater. It's really important to me for each of my books to kind of be a new, an entirely new thing. Um, I mean, there's nothing new under the sun, but an entirely new thing for me and to, to challenge myself to approach different genres, to keep questioning what, the novel can do and what narrative is capable capable of um, and pushing myself to not acclimate or get comfortable in one sort of mode of writing. So the, the new book I'm working on is a very different thing, but it is similarly weird. So <laughs> in this weird era, let's see what I, yeah. <laughs> I think we'll always be somewhat strange, but I don't want to say that because maybe I have a great realist novel in me and I just don't know it yet. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get there when we get there. We'll cross that bridge. But for now, keep it weird. I'm just really happy to hear that too. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) And yeah, so I guess I'll just kind of end by saying that, like I mentioned earlier, Temporary is one of my favorite, favorite books to hand sell at the bookstore essentially because it means I get to bring other people into the fold. I really think that there's this kind of like contemporary cult 
classic aspect to temporary. And I really hope for all of our sakes that we're all going to be talking about this book and kind of whispering about this book for uh, for years to come. Oh, thank you so much, Alex. That's really, that means so much to me. And I love, I love booksellers and you're great. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on the podcast. And uh, I'll be sure to hit you up whenever this uh, second novel manifests itself. Please do. <laughs> okay. Thank you, everybody, for listening. You can uh, pick up Temporary by Hilary Leichter at St. Henry Books now. Thanks. <laughs>